We'll turn back to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. And as you're turning there, uh, just a quick couple of uh, contextual things that we talked about last night. This is going to be a little bit of review, and then I want to tell you methodologically what I'm going to do. Uh, there are two kinds, well, there's multiple kinds of what we call exposition, expository preaching. Expository preaching is where you're setting forth the meaning of God's word. You're telling what God's word says and explaining what God's word means. That's expository preaching. And that's what's the purest form of standing before people and giving a speech on behalf of God. Exposition. Exposition comes in several flavors though. Sometimes we call it consecutive exposition. It's what, what Brian does, what Scott does, what I do. Week in and week out where you, you go verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 5 from chapter 1 to the end. Sometimes you'll do a section, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, three chapters in the middle of Matthew. But you're moving consecutively through a text. That's really important because that's how the mind of the Spirit of God revealed that truth. That's how you ought to learn to read your Bible too. But there's also another kind of exposition that's equally as important. It's topical exposition. When you understand topical exposition, which is taking different things that God has said about the same subject or the same theological uh, nuanced argument from different parts of the Bible, and you put that, those pieces of the puzzle together, that's really what's called systematic theology. You're making a systematic study of what God has said in multiple places in the word about the same subject or topic. What we're going to do today is launch from the text we looked at last night into a systematic study of this issue of finding hope in a sea of difficulty. This issue of excelling and ascending and accenting your faith, moving with deliberate intentionality in your sanctifying efforts to be more like Jesus Christ. What this conference is about is really putting your life in the direction of becoming more like Jesus. That's his goal for us. And isn't it interesting that Jesus, when he saved us, when he called us, when God, when he elected and brought us into his kingdom, when we were converted by believing, having faith in Jesus Christ, that we weren't in exactly at that moment raptured and went to heaven? Why are we still here? We're still here to enjoy all of the glories of the gospel, forgiveness, kindness, mercy, undeserved grace, and to see that in the context of our, of our sin. You know, I was thinking about sanctification. I'm preaching on sanctification tomorrow morning at our church. I'm uh, in the middle of Romans, at the end of Romans 7. Um, and by the way, Brian, uh, unsolicited comment. I can't wait to get to Romans eight twenty eight. I have a good book on Romans eight twenty eight. I can show you that if you want to. Um, uh, you didn't sign that book for me, though. I've, I don't know how I got it without a signature, so I'm going to send it back to you for a signature. Um, and uh, we're right in the thick. The, the series that I'm in right now in chapter 6 and 7, we called Aggressive About Sanctification. It's really about being aggressive, about moving forward in what this conference is about. Moving toward Christ. One of the things I was thinking about last night in the effort, at the end of Romans 7, he just talks about the good I want to do, I don't do. And 
In fact, I do the very thing I don't want to do. I'm a wretched man. I can't believe it. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God who brings us deliverance and there's no condemnation in Christ. It's just this wonderful crescendo and the experience that we can all share with and understanding Paul's fight and what you and I are doing in trying to be more like Christ in a very sinful, wicked, and difficult world. And this illustration came to me that I'm going to tell tomorrow in a church, but you get it first, of how hard it is that... God doesn't bring us to heaven exactly in the moment when we're saved, but he leaves us here to become holy. A few weeks ago, I got a, um, uh, this, it doesn't matter, it was this, this, this piece of pipe that I needed to use uh, for a project. And I got it from Home Depot and it had a price tag on it. Now, if, if the adhesives that are used in modern day price tags our nuclear strength. So the first thing I did is as I tore it off. And when I tore it off, you know how you just tell, you, you're done this, you tear the price tag off. There's just the top layer that's there and it's gone. And then all the white stuff is still there. That's much like what happens in our sanctification. We're forgiven. The price tag is gone. No one could tell when I was stripping it off that piece of pipe what, how much it cost. It's done. And I worked for the next hour getting that stinking sticky stuff off that tube. That's a lot like sanctification. Even though we're forgiven, even though our debt is paid, the rest of life we're just scraping the residue of sin out of and off of our lives. Sometimes it takes acetone. Sometimes it takes steel wool. And sometimes it takes suffering and adversity. Are you struggling in your Christian life? Do you struggle? Do you know what it means to fight against sin? Do you know what it means to come to communion again, just like last month, and you come this month and you say, I'm confessing the same thing that I did last, last month? Are you in a struggle? Are you in a battle? If you are, that's a good sign. This guy in my office, he was a collegian just this last summer. Uh, it's, it's a conversation I've had multiple times, but it was, a, uh, it was a, just a precious time. He was, he was telling me that he, he really desires to love the Lord. He really desires to honor Christ. He really desires to be all that God wants him to be. And he sat in my office. He said, something's wrong with me. He was so downcast. He says, something's wrong with me, Rick. I just, I'm not getting it. I'm not as, I'm not as good at Christianity as everyone else. So what do you mean? I mean, this guy's in the word every day. He's uh, leading, he's serving, he's stacking chairs, setting them down. He's first to come, last to leave. I, I, I was a little bit shocked. I said, what do you mean? He says, you don't understand. There's a battle in my heart and in my mind. Not every day, not every hour, every minute to think about holy things. And I don't do very well. And because it's so hard, I just wonder how in the world can I be a Christian? You ever thought that? And I kind of started laughing. And he wasn't amused. I mean, he's pouring his soul out. He's got tears in his eyes. Why is this so hard? And I'm like, it's just, this is great. What do you mean this is great? And I said, if you're not in the struggle and in the battle, that's the proof that you're not saved. If you're battling, struggling, fighting, hating, hoping, that's a good sign. If you care that you're not doing as well as you want to do, that's a great sign. What is your expectation that you're going to be perfect in this world? You're going to wake up and you and Jesus, maybe you and the Trinity, there's kind of four of you, you kind of elbow yourself in there. You just kind of walk around and think everything's great. And we're just kind of the, the blessing to the world. Is that really what your expectation is? 
Most of us have what Tom Schreiner calls, he's a commentator and a theologian, an over-realized eschatology. In other words, we have an expectation that we're going to live on this world like it's going to be in heaven. No trials, no problems, no sufferings. And he says, you just got to read your Bible. That's heaven. That's not earth. Paul talks about that here in Romans 5. He talks about it at the launching of the practical section of the book. The practical section is very clear. You saw it in chapter 1 of verse 5. Therefore, having been justified by God, and now we see the fruit, the results, and the pursuit. You find the first imperative in the middle of chapter 6 when he says, don't present your, your body, the members of your body, as instruments of unrighteousness. He says, okay, the gospel is something you know. The gospel is something you believe. Now it's time to get practical. Understand the benefits and understand the responsibilities. On the wall of my office is a collection of pictures and portraits of my heroes. There's about nine pictures up there. It's, these are the heroes of my faith. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Lloyd-Jones, William Carey, William Tyndale, Hugh Latimer. These men, I feel like they look over my shoulder every day. As I said, one of them is William Carey. I read his biography. If you're going to read William Carey's biography by S. Pierce Carey, his great-grand, I think it's his grandson or his great-grandson, you better, you better not do it in a place when you have homework because you're not going to put it down. I've never read anything that just pulls you in like a novel like this, this, uh, this biography. Carey was a British missionary to India. He was a brilliant scholar and theologian, a disciplined linguist. He translated the Bible in over a dozen Indian languages. He ministered in India from 1793 to 1834, and he died there after four decades of faithful service. Now, the base camp of William Carey's translation ministry was in Sarampore in a printing shop that was 200 by 50 feet, And there he employed a series of typesetters, compositors, pressmen, binders, writers, and 20 translators. On March 18th, 1812, 20 years after he began his translation work in that little shop, two decades later, March 18, 1812, Carey was away teaching in Calcutta, and he got news that a fire had broken out in his printing room. And despite hours of efforts from the locals, the entire building, all of its instruments, all of its machinery, and every bit, 100% of his work was burned up. His entire library was got lost. His completed Sanskrit dictionary that he had completed was, was lost. His Bengal dictionary was gone. His two grammar books which he had written were gone. Ten translations of the Bible that he had completed and not published were gone in a, in a blazing fire. Even the typesist, the machinery for 14 different languages were all gone. Dictionaries gone, paper gone, paper was expensive. Deeds have gone, account records have gone. All, not some, all of the personal property he had except what he had in his suitcase in Calcutta instantly burned to the ground. 20 years of nonstop work evaporated. He immediately returned from Calcutta. And it was said of those who observed him, he walked to the scene and dropped to his knees and wept. 
He said, in one short evening, the labors of years are consumed. How unsearchable are the ways of God. I had lately brought some of the things to almost perfection. He'd almost finished his, these translations of which they seemed capable and contemplated. The, he was contemplating his missionary efforts. And then he said, the Lord has laid me low so that I may look more simply to him. The loss is heavy, he wrote. But as traveling a road the second time is usually done with greater ease than the first time, so I trust the work will lose nothing of real value. We are not discouraged. Indeed, the work has already begun again in every language. We are downcast, but we are not in despair. Not long after the fire, Kerry wrote to his pastor friend, Andrew Fuller, in England. He said this in this letter. It's incredible. The ground must be labored over and over again. We are not discouraged. We have been supported under affliction and preserved from discouragement. To me, the consideration of the divine sovereignty and wisdom has been very supporting. I endeavored to improve this, our last affliction on the Lord's day from Psalm 46, 10. Be still and know that I'm God. I principally dwelt upon two ideas. These were his ideas. God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as he pleases. Wow. And he says, secondly, we ought to acquiesce in all that God does with us and to us. The bedrock of William Carey's theology was the bedrock of what Paul talked about in Romans 5. He knew something. He knew something. Exult in your tribulations, knowing... And then he says that God is doing things behind the scenes. Um, Let me ask you, as we're jumping into this and just doing some review and some theologizing today, are are you in the thick of it right now? Now, the thick of it has a scale. I understand the thick of it could be midterms. I remember midterms. It's a paper. It's, It's an academic challenge. It's the recovery of of getting a bad grade that you now have to apply three times the good grades to to bring that up. It could be a relationship that's gone sour. It could be a relationship that's unfulfilled. It could be a girlfriend or a boyfriend that's not working out or a girlfriend or boyfriend you don't have. It could be a trial with your mom or your dad, a relationship that you're not getting along with. It could be something physical. It could be a sickness. It could be a loved one's sickness. Whatever that is, I want you to take that trial and press it through these theologies that we're going to look at. And if you're not in the middle of things, man, take a big, deep breath of Holy Spirit air and say, thank you. But know that they're coming. You will need a theology of affliction. You need a theology of trouble. You need a theology of unpleasantries. You need a theology of suffering. Do you have a theology? Let me ask you another way. Will the theology you already have sustain the weight of trials and troubles when they come? Because remember, Carrie said it, Paul said it, though James said it. Those are sent by God to make you more like his son. Quick review over what we talked about last night, okay? We looked at this passage and we said there are three distinctives in difficult circumstances. Three Christian distinctives in difficult circumstances. 
The first is growth in a counterintuitive response to our difficulties. We don't respond as our intuition would, would suggest. Not only this, we exult in our tribulations. We're excited. We over, we're overjoyed, not about our tribulations, but about what they're going to accomplish in us. The true mature Christian who's ascending to the heights of heaven, sanctified steps that we're taking toward heaven, is one who is not shocked or alarmed by trials, but understands that those trials are for our good and God's glory. Do you have a theology that will sustain it? Listen, look up just a second. A little eye contact, okay? You have a theology for trials. The question is, can it bear the weight of them? Are you ready for when it happens? Not if, but when. Consider all joy, my brethren, not if, when you encounter various trials, knowing, there's our word again, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. God is doing things. He's testing your faith. Had a, um, uh, a tire that went uh, flat. Um, this was just the first of the summer. Um, I didn't have time for it. It was a pain. I, was, I saw it was going flat. I saw that things were, were I've got this little meter on my, uh, uh, my dashboard that tells me, you know, your right rear tire is going bad. I don't know if that's helpful or hurtful, you know. Just, I used to just get the blump, 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 blump. Then you knew there was a problem. Well, I went to get this thing fixed. Sure enough, I have a, um, a nail in it. And sure enough, he says, look, this is going to be at 12 bucks. I'm going to plug it. I'm going to do some, some shaving of the tire. Okay, great. I was very interested to watch him find, though, if there was any more leaks in the tire. You ever seen this? Have you ever worked at a tire store, some of you? It's called a tire press. I've never seen one. They had a big stainless steel thing in the back. It was, it was about this deep with water. And it was pretty big. You could put a tractor tire in there. And he put my tire in that and it was floating. And then there was a press that came down with a screw. It was, it was actually, it was a, a pole and a lever. And he, in the, it presses the tire under, under the water. And then there's a blunt edge, a big round blunt edge that he would wind up and it came into the tire and it would kind of concave the tire. And then he would watch to see where the bubbles came out and find the leaks. Genius. Trials are that press. God is putting your soul under his water to show you the leaks that you need to address. Are you looking for them? Let me say it, what we said last night. Most Christians are trying to get out of what God put us into to make us more like him. Don't seek to get out as fast as you seek to go through. We exult in our tribulations. Secondly, we notice that awareness of the invisible processes behind our difficulties is a perspective and a distinctive that unbelievers don't have. We know that God is doing things. I'm reaching, Brian, for Romans 8, 28, which says that very thing. That we know that not only does God know, God causes all things, not some things, not a few things. There's no footnote. They're all things to work together for my good. How in the world does that work? That's a confidence that I know something is going on above the clouds where there's calm, where there's below the clouds and there's a storm. Just uh, two weeks ago, I had one of the roughest flights. I fly a fair amount roughest flights I've ever had. I was, I'm typically not very nervous on a flight. People around who get nervous, it's a great opportunity to witness. But this was, we were losing air, like probably hundreds of feet at a time going up through the storm. And it was, it was pretty rocky and ruckus. And, 
And you know, I'm thinking, uh, I began thinking, how many things could go wrong on this plane? Finally, we're bouncing back and forth. And, you know, you, you know it's bad when the, the stewardesses will be sitting down and not be serving you because we're all about to die. I mean, they just sat him down, stay buckled. Finally, I, it was incredible. There was no one sitting. I was on the, the left side. There's two seats there. There was no one sitting on the window. I was on the aisle and the window was open. And it was black and dark and murky. And then all of a sudden, it was smooth. And there was blue sky. And it was calm, safe. And I thought about this passage. Do you know that there's blue sky in heaven all the time? You know that God has absolute peace. He's given our soul security in Christ. Do you know the storms that we're in won't last forever? Knowing tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance proves our character. Proven character gives us hope, which we need most in the point of a difficult trial. And then thirdly, we looked at the fact that comfort from the divine supply for our difficulties comes because we experience and know the love of God, which chapter six, 5, verses 6 through 11 explains. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, not good guys, someone might die for, but sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Sinners, ungodly, wicked, unjust he died for. We looked at that yesterday. What I want to do now is give you some building blocks for that theology of suffering. This is systematic theology. We're going to connect some scriptures. We're going to go fast. You're probably not going to be able to turn to all these passages, but let me encourage you. If one of these passages jumps out of you, out at you and grabs your soul, I want to do something really the preacher should never do. Go to that passage, tune me out, and think about that verse. I'm convinced that this, the density of what God says about these afflictions is so profound. It's impossible if you're a believer that one of these verses God doesn't have for, for, for you and me. So let's look at it. I'm going to give you some building blocks for a theology of suffering. Seven or eight of them, okay? Number one, these are just theological statements that you need to grab hold of as you build your theology for difficulty, as you build your theology to become more like Christ. Number one, afflictions remind us of God's sovereignty. Afflictions remind us of God's sovereignty. Let me just read some passages to you. In the book of Ruth, chapter one, verse 21. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Note, this is Naomi. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Do you hear what Naomi said? You remember her situation? She loses her husband. She loses her family. She's destitute. All she has is Ruth. Ruth stays with her. And she says, and when she's looking at her affliction, she says, the Lord has afflicted me. She wasn't blaming God. She was affirming that God causes all things to work together. Job chapter one, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Two times in the Hebrew, two times in the Greek, in, in the English rather. It says the Lord, the Lord. The Lord has get, given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Are you aware that everything you get is from the Lord? That's so nice to think about. Let me ask you this. Are you aware that everything that you don't have is because God hasn't given it to you? Talking to this sweet girl. Oh my goodness, Kim was just money in this counseling situation. It wasn't even a full account. This, this girl come, comes by. She's about your age. 
and she's, she's a delightful girl. If my son was old enough, I'd, I'd, I'd just say, you know, I'd have an arranged marriage, just a godly girl. But she just, uh, she's really discouraged. She says, I'm doing everything I want to do, but no guy cares about me or my love for the Lord. And I understand, this is for another, another time, I understand the situation of girls in not wanting to be the, the, uh, the initiator that you have to respond, and it's hard. So she was just lamenting the fact that I just, I'm just frustrated. I want to be a wife. I want to be a godly wife. I'll be a good wife. I'll try hard. I'm going to, it was just breaking our hearts. And Kim just said with a smile, I'll never forget. She just says, I almost said her name. Let's just call herself, call her Sally. She says, Sally, you believe that God gives good gifts? She says, yes. Has God given you a man right now? She says, no. And she says, then rest in assured confidence that it's not in your best interest for you to have that right now. And you could almost see this weight evaporate off of Sally. Well, God is in this. God's heard my prayers for a husband, but he hasn't given. Therefore, God's sovereignty is still sovereign in my life. Job 2 He says, Job says to his woman, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity from God? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. God has never said, whoops, adversity is from his sovereign purposes. Remember what he says in Jeremiah 24, verse five, thus says the Lord of God of Israel, like these good figs I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. You got these Jews in Babylon who are being told by Jeremiah, rest in confidence. God knows you're here. He sent you here. This is not out of his plan. He's not fretting in heaven. What are we going to do now, angels? We talked about this passage last year. Lamentations 3, who is it that speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why then should any living mortal or any uh, man offer complaint in view of his sins? Everything comes from the hand of the Lord. Now, we're not going to get into the whole theodicy discussion. No, God doesn't send sin to your life. God doesn't give, uh, make you do bad things. But he is responsible for everything that happens in your life. That should not be a threat. That should be a comfort if you know the Lord. If, you're not a, if you don't know the Lord, that's a threat. It's a serious threat. So remember, afflictions remind us of God's sovereignty. When we tell God, God, do you see what's happening? He doesn't say, where, 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 where are you talking? Where are you coming from? I'm deaf in one ear, so when someone says something, I never know where the sound comes from. What? I mean, the phone can ring over there and I walk over here. My sons laugh at me. I'm like, don't laugh at me. Tell me where the ringing is. That's not funny. I'm an old man. God's not like that. He doesn't triangulate your location. He's omnipresent, omniscient. He heard it. He knows exactly what's going on and he has ordained it. Number two, afflictions reveal sin. Are you aware theologically going into an affliction, a trauma, trouble, that it reveals sin. I love Psalm 119. You might want to turn over here. These are, if you underline things in your Bible, these are two verses to underline. Asterisk, star, whatever you do, highlight. Psalm 119, verse 67, listen. 
before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, now that I've been afflicted, I keep your word. Look down to verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 119, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that faithfulness, in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Did you know that God brings that affliction? Remember that tire underwater? It shows you the leak. You usually see the deepest parts of your theological sin in an epness when you are in the midst of a trial. Trouble trusting, trouble uh, believing, trouble hoping. Deep spiritual trials, deep spiritual issues are brought about rather by trials. They reveal your sin. Here's the question. This is hard. And I'm telling you this because I love you. I'm telling myself, my own soul this too. When you're in the middle of quote unquote being victimized by some trial, instead of saying, look at what's happening to me, why don't you stop and say, let me see by what's happening what this shows me that's wrong with me. That's maturity. That's profound spiritual maturity. When someone comes to correct you, you know how defensive we are? You know how we, there's the Christian uh, confrontation, which is all great. And then there's the the fake Christian response. You know, someone comes and says, hey, Rick, I I I wanna talk to you. I don't know what was in your heart, but man, when you said that, that really sounded proud. And outside I say, oh, thank you, brother, for caring for my soul. And inside I'm thinking, what I said, let me tell you seven things you said, buster. You talk about pride. I got a mirror right here, look. No. Maturity, maturity, here's what maturity says. That's all you got? It's worse than you think. <laughs> That's the only part of my pride you saw? Oh, I'm so thankful. You should see the whole stretch of my pride. That's maturity. Affliction brings about your, should bring about your recognition of sin. Psalmist says, I went astray until I was afflicted. Now I keep your word. They have the ability to realign our priorities. Number three, afflictions, until that, mature and sanctify us. They mature and sanctify us. Let's look uh, quickly at that passage that we've been noting all um, for the last two days. Um, James 1, you know it well. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing, here's our word, knowing. Now let's look at after what's knowing. That the testing of your faith produces hupomone, the ability to remain under the trial, the endurance, that godliness in the midst of suffering. And let endurance have its perfect, that's really not the greatest translation of that word, have its maturing result. That you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Are you seeing what's going on here? God is sending you trials to show you what's lacking in your faith so that you can be mature and supply those characteristics, those character qualities, Romans talks about, supplies character, into your life. It matures and sanctifies you. Are you looking in the midst of difficulty at this question? How is this going to make me a more mature, more responsible, more faithful believer and witness for Jesus Christ? Why would you ask that? Because that's why he sent the trial. That's why it's happening. You think God's just in heaven? You know, I like to shoot my bow and and pull it back, boom, boom, boom. 
You think God's in heaven with, a, with an archery thinking, lightning bolt of affliction, boom, boom, got him, got him. You think these are just target practice? Can I encourage you and freak you out at the same time? Okay, I want you to write this down in your brain, not on your notes, okay? You, you won't forget it, trust me. God, you know how you go to the doctor and he writes prescriptions for you? Yeah, that's, I don't know how any pharmacist or any doctor can ever read those, but they write prescriptions for you. God has looked ahead at your week, your month, your year, your decade, your life. He's looked ahead at your life. And he has written a prescription with his sovereign pen for trials and difficulties that are prescribed for you. You say, I thought prescriptions are supposed to be medicine to help. They are. These are prescriptions of trials that he wants you to endure and go through to make you like Jesus. So when it happens, are you recognizing it as God's prescription? Or do you just say, ah, this is, this is the, the devil. The devil, just like Job, the devil's after me. Well, the devil is after you for other reasons, but God's after you to use providence in your life to bring you in the conformity with him. You know, sovereignty is easy. Sovereignty is way up above the clouds. Providence is when God's sovereignty messes with your life. God's involved in messing around with your life and making it better. Number four. Ooh, get your seatbelt on. Afflictions <laughs> topple our idols. They walk into our room of idolatry and they knock the idol over. It's like Dagon. Remember that? I love that story of Dagon. Falls over the stadium, falls over hands and crushed and chopped off. First Thessalonians chapter one. B, uh, you also became imitators of us. First Thessalonians 1, 6. And of the Lord, having received the word with much tribulation. Here it is. With the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that in the midst of the tribulation, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Isn't that interesting? These Thessalonians became a glowing example of God's loving, sovereign purposes in the gospel because they endured their trials and afflictions well. Their tribulations were not wasted. They were spent pointing to God. Then he goes on, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. The, 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 the Thessalonians' reputation was they knew how to endure trials and afflictions well. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, how you turn to God. Remember the context is their trial. You turn to God from idols to serve a living God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from wrath. You see what's going on there? This is what happens in, Thess in Thessalonica. They were having trials. We don't know what kind of trials they were. No doubt persecution. The way they handled those trials was connected to the fact that they were turning from idols to God. Now let's translate that into our, our um, context. What, well, look, what's your idol? Well, I do not have an idol. I have seen idols. They are little cows in the Smithsonian Institute and in the British Museum. That's not what I'm talking about. You've got idols. Can I give you a definition you're not going to like? An idol is anything you will sin to do or get and anything you will sin if you don't enjoy or don't get. That's an idol. An idol is anything you will sin in order to do it or get it 
And an idol is anything that you sin because you didn't do it, didn't get to do it, or didn't get it. I mean, this is a great discussion at lunch. It's a vulnerable discussion. Just say, what are your idols? What are some of your idols? You say, what are yours, Rick? Okay, I'll tell you if you are, right? College stinking football. I know that Tennessee is on this phone right here and they're playing. Don't tell me the score. They're playing right now. I love Tennessee football. I don't know why. Kim says, why do you have your sanctification depend on a bunch of sweaty 19-year-olds? I don't know, but it matters. Somehow, for something. Hunting is an idol. I could hunt every moment of every day of every hunting season. As my wife says, Rick's a good hunter. He's just not a good getter. She's always a great hunter. He hunts all the time. He hunts. He doesn't get anything, but he hunts. <laughs> Fountain pens. Had to stop buying them a few years ago. I know it's weird. It's a fountain pen. It's old-fashioned. You fill it with ink. You got ink all over your hands. You write with it. And I'll tell you what, when it's a smooth nib and you're writing with that fountain pen, it is, there's nothing like it. <laughs> what are your idols? Can I tell you another idol? Is, one idol I, I, is, probably my biggest idol is being liked. Man, I like to be liked. I love being liked. I like it when you like me. I like it when you give me sweatshirts. Three. I don't know which one I'm going to wear first tonight. I like being liked, don't you? It's okay to like being liked, but when you start to sin so that people like you, that's a problem. When you sin to get the fountain pen, that's a problem. When I neglect my family because I'm going hunting, that's a problem. When I ignore my son when I'm watching a football game, that's a sin, that's an idol. None of those things in and of themselves are sinful, but you sin because of them. That's an idol. Trials will make you identify your idols pretty quick. And God often sends trials associated with your idols. Just watch for that. Number five, afflictions make us long for heaven. This is pretty obvious. Second Corinthians 4 tells us about this. We have momentary lot of afflictions. They make us long for that great day when we will be in heaven. They loosen our grip on this earth. Thomas Watson said, afflictions are, godly, are to the godly medicinal. It's medicine. They make us long for heaven. You know, if, think about this. If you got everything you wanted in this, in this earth, would you ever want to go to heaven? I mean, if this earth really, this is that over-realized eschatology that Thomas Schreiner talks about. If, if you got everything in this, that you wanted and you did everything you want to do, would you, how would that work out for you? By the way, I'm starting Ecclesiastes tomorrow night in our church. That's exactly what Solomon had. Think about having unhindered power and unlimited resources. You could do or have anything you wanted. Can you imagine being that wealthy, that much power? He did that. And you know what he said in the end? Havel. Hebrew word. You know what it means? Vanity. Steam off a cup of coffee. There for a moment and gone. Doesn't bring lasting satisfaction. Trials, afflictions make us long for heaven. Number six, afflictions give us perspective. Just a couple more. Afflictions give us perspective. 
They make us see what's really important. Martin Luther said, Conduct yourselves as those who are no longer citizens of this world, for your possessions lie not in this earth, but in heaven. And although you may have lost all temporal goods, but you still have Christ who is worth all else. The devil is the prince of this world and he rules it. His citizens are the people of this world. Therefore, since you are not of this world, act as a stranger. I love this. Act as a stranger in an inn who does not have his possessions with him, but merely procures food and spends his money for it. For this world is merely a place of transit. It's like a hotel. Where we cannot stay, we must travel further. Therefore, we should use the worldly good, the world's goods, only to shelter and sustain ourselves before we depart and go to another land. In heaven, we are true citizens. On earth, we are only pilgrims and guests. When you have that kind of perspective, you'll be surprised how many of your afflictions will evaporate in the light of that perspective. Read 2 Corinthians 4.18. Number seven, afflictions work for God's glory and our good. I'm not going to say too much about this, but to tell you this, and I'm not just saying this because I'm here. I would say, I'm going to say this tomorrow in our church. You need to get uh, Dr. Brian Hughes' book on Romans 8.28. God is doing things to you and around you and for you for your good and his glory. You know, the... Romans 8, 28, everybody likes the fact that God's in control. The, the first few words are troubling. For God causes, he causes all things to work together for good. Number eight, afflictions silence the wicked. Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant it evil against me. This is Joseph talking to his brothers. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. People can't, they don't have anything to say to a believer of critical nature who's enduring affliction. After the fire that destroyed his life work, William Carey in India resolved to trust God that he would provide a better press, a more scholarly translation, and within a few months... Carrie had set up shop in a warehouse. Very little did Carrie know that that fire would bring him and his work notoriety to the people of India, reaching all the way way around the world. And he he never had to worry about funding again for his translation work, which he had spent half his time raising money for. Once that fire happened, people heard about it. It got around the world. It was was in the London, uh, front page of the London Times. And he was funded for the rest of his ministry. Less than two months later, 10,000 pounds, that was a lot of money in those days, raised in England and Scotland for rebuilding his publishing house. Countless volunteers traveled to India to help carry setting up uh, the the example for what we now call short-term missions. That was all, the first short-term missionaries would go and help carry rebuild his warehouse. In 1832, William Carey's rebuilt and expanded printing operation had published complete Bibles or portions of the Bible in 44 languages and dialects in India. Just think of that. He labored for that country for 40 continuous years, never once returning to his native England. How could he do that? How could you lose your whole life's work 
your entirety, your significance, your life, the tools, your, your, your friend's jobs. How can you do all that? Because he knew how to process this. What do I feel? We heard what he felt. He was despairing. What did I think? What did I know? Carrie went the opposite way. He knew God's purpose. He knew God's sovereignty. He knew God's goodness, which caused him to think rightly, which caused him to control his feelings. Listen, students, I love you, but I'm gonna tell you, it's gonna get bad. You're gonna have bad times. Now, it's not gonna all be bad. You're gonna have great times too. Are you ready? Do you have a theology ready for, not if, but when difficulty comes? Now, why talk about this? Why, why, why say these things? Because if we ascend, if we advance, if we move forward, we need to understand that... I want to say this without qualification. Let me, just, let me say it from my perspective, okay? Nothing has, here's our theme, advanced my walk with the Lord more than afflictions and trials and difficulties. It just makes me wonder what, what's next. Something wrong with my body? Something happened to my son? Most difficult three minutes of my life happened with my wife. About four years ago, we were uh, up in Colorado and we... Uh, we're on uh, going with uh, some friends on a, up toward a 14 or it's a 14,000 foot um, cliff, uh, peak rather. And uh, we were on some four-wheelers. This is the first time my son Luke had ridden a four-wheeler. Um, it wasn't dangerous, but there were a couple of exposed cliffs or sections. Um... For some reason, we had come around a corner and Luke was behind me. I, I, I was bringing up the rear, but Luke was behind me. No, that's not true. I was, I was bringing up the rear and he was ahead of me around a, cur- a corner. That's what it was. And so um, I came around a corner and went up and then I, they, were, they were all stopped to kind of regroup and we got there and Luke wasn't there. And we'd just gone by a couple of steep cliff inclines. Where's Luke? Where's Luke? Where's Luke? I remember the look that my wife and I shared when we looked at each other and we knew this, is, this was not good news. Turned around and rolled it. We went back about a half mile and Luke was climbing up from this cliff. He'd rolled over, we figure, about three times down a 40-foot embankment. It had stopped. The four-wheeler had rolled over him a couple times. And pretty serious uh, facial scratches and lacerations. And it had landed on a, on a, a deadfall, a lodgepole with about three feet of space before a boulder and a creek. Luke had landed in the space and the lodgepole had stopped the ATV. We hugged, we cried, we did. We were thankful. The four-wheeling ride was over for the day. We went back. That night we were in the cabin and we talked and we prayed and we wept. And then we asked Luke, how do you process this, son? It's probably 
probably 14 at the time. And he said so perfectly. He said, I, I should have died today, but God preserved me. And I'm convinced that that happened because my focus has not been where it needs to be on Christ. I don't know if you're going to fall over a cliff. What's going to happen? Those three minutes, going back and finding Luke, I can't tell you the horror, 10,000 thoughts that went through my mind. I've lost my boy. He's dead. He's paralyzed. He's you know what I can, I, I won't tell you anything about my faith or Kim's faith. Let me tell you about our God. I was convinced in that moment that God was still sitting on the throne. We're driving back around the corner and I just remember praying over and over. I didn't, I didn't even have the language to pray very much except say, God, I know you know. 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 And the knowledge that he knew gave me a peace. That there's, I can't explain. It was supernatural. I've never experienced anything like that in my life. But knowing that he knew changed everything. What do you know? We exult in our tribulations knowing. That's why you read your Bible. That's why you go to church. That's why you're in discipleship is to know what you need to know so you're ready for God to work on your heart. Let's pray. I know, Father, that there are difficulties and trials ahead of me and these precious folks in this room. Equip us. Fill our theological toolboxes. Make us to know what we need to know so that in that moment we can be more like your son, we can glorify you, we can experience your good for us. Father, if you have sent your only begotten son to die for our sins and our eternity is secure, what possible event, person, angelic creature could separate us from your love in this life? Equip us, teach us, Prepare us. Set us as a city on a hill for your good, for our good, for your glory, and for our witness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.